A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, my colleagues Anusha Kellyan and Stephen Bush. This week we talk about Matt Hancock scrapping Public Health England and you ask us, what is the government's logic behind not extending the furlough scheme, not extending the ban on evictions and not making universal credit more generous? So we had confirmation this Monday that Matt Hancock, the health secretary, is indeed planning to scrap Public Health England and replace it with the National Institute for Health Protection. It has um, sparked quite a lot of controversy because the person appointed to to lead the the new body is Dido Harding, who has been leading NHS tests and trace with limited success but it also begs a lot of broader interesting questions about the the role of outsourcing in our pandemic response and government institutions and how well they have handled the pandemic so far but maybe if we begin with Dido Harding Anush what did you think of her appointment to lead this new body well I think it's really interesting because you can you can look at it two ways so I think with things like this, it's quite easy to be cynical about the government's, this kind of decision by the government to appoint someone who is, you know, sympathetic to their response to the crisis so far and someone who they they work closely with and someone who appears to have more sort of government friendly credentials than sort of health expertise credentials, first of all. And also, you know, the main accusation, which is, which has been written very eloquently by our doctor writer, Phil Whitaker, recently, that they're sort of trying to make a scapegoat of public health England and try and sort of suggest that they're wrapping it up because it's to blame for the early failings of the government's COVID-19 response. But actually, I don't know if it's really that simple. And I think your piece was really good, Alva, because you you wrote well about how it just leaves questions left to answer, but it's not it's not clear cut. Because if the government truly wanted to make a scapegoat of a body that perhaps it had had frustrations working with during the crisis, but didn't truly feel that that the blame lay at its door for the failure, they just wanted to spin it that way, then really the politically sensible thing to do would be to leave it exactly how it is and where it is so that by the time we get to that sort of fated inquiry, then it's still there and you can say, look at all of the things it did wrong throughout this time. Actually, to wrap it up after what, we know now it's going to be the very first sort of inch of our marathon response to the coronavirus suggests that there there is this new body that 
appears on the face of it to be closer to the government and its aims to scrutinise by the time that 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 inquiry comes along. So I guess I'm not as cynical as perhaps some of the sort of detractors of the government were when this news was announced. Not least because Public Health England did, of course, make mistakes, particularly around the the testing at the beginning of this. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Anush, even though I did kind of set you up to give a cynical answer about Dido Harding there. I actually think that this question is more interesting and like produces like more sort of useful answers. If you think of it from the perspective of what Matt Hancock and the government are actually trying to achieve by doing this, rather than jumping to the the easier and more fun, arguably sort of cynical reaction of decrying Dido Harding sort of failing upwards into an ever more senior position in the pandemic response when she doesn't have much public health experience. And also, you know, the way this has been framed as scapegoating public health England. I think it's actually, as you say, there are lots of questions unanswered, but I've been trying to think about what Matt Hancock is trying to do with this and and what it says about the government's approach and that's just much more interesting so he like this was obviously trailed in the Sunday newspapers with separate stories first about public health England being scrapped and then separately about who would be leading it but then he confirmed it in a speech at the right of centre think tank policy exchange and I think in that he made quite a compelling case for bringing the kind of scientific experience of public health England which normally is sort of does does basically anything preventative in our healthcare system so whether that's you know managing obesity or addiction or biohazards or pandemic preparation all of that used to fall under its remit but taking the scientific expertise on pandemics and bringing that into this new body in combination with a joint biosecurity centre and NHS test and trace. I mean, there's a case to be made that that will resolve some of the logistical problems that arose at the beginning of the pandemic. I still am not completely clear about what was going on in March because I think no one is, no one like fully has the information on this, but it does look as though there was a point where no one knew who was responsible for for getting a testing program up and running and public health England didn't think that it was its responsibility and it didn't actually have the capacity to do it even if it had been its responsibility but it's the head of public health England has released a statement saying that it wasn't actually up to them and it looks as though basically it's not that they didn't realize it was their responsibility but the no the really it was no one's responsibility that's ultimately a failure of government. Public Health England reports to government. They need to like make it clear about who's responsible for certain projects in, in the case of an emergency like that. But for next time, there will be a body that is responsible for that. And the question is whether it will have the capacity. I mean, it should do. But the problem in, in the beginning was that Public Health England didn't really have the money to bring in a comprehensive testing system when it was chronically underfunded. So I guess actually I am slightly more cynical about it than either of you. So we say I kind of have like inquiry brain at the moment because I'm chairing this commission on racial inclusivity within the Jewish community. And I have been rereading the various reports on race, institutional racism and and how they should behave. So I've reread Scarman, I've reread McPherson. And because of the pandemic, I have read the 
inquiry into the handling of the BSE. I was about to try and pronounce Bongeforn's Bongeth, mm-hmm. but I realised, and you know, you've got to, you've got to know your lane. I mad cow disease. You know, the thing is, I actually think the kind of like the personal criticism of Dido Harding is sort of slightly off base, right? She's correctly said, look, if you don't fix uh, sick statutory sick pay, people aren't going to self isolate, and it doesn't matter how good your test and trace stuff is, right? So she's she's done the kind of like actually being an effective leader of a kind of quasi-autonomous body than than I would want to see. Essentially, I just think from a like, I mean, obviously, the government's not committed to good governance, right? Like, this, this, that is actually one of the distinct new things about this new-ish conservative government. But like, you shouldn't have the organisational surgery before you've had the inquiry into like, what, what went wrong. In terms of what my understanding of Matt Hancock's views about the twenty 12 Health and Social Care Act, which obviously created Public Health England, created NHS England, created a third body whose who's, who's name temporarily escapes me. I broadly agree with that criticism. And so I, I, you know, I wouldn't be astonished if, like, when there is a proper inquiry, probably held by the next government, whether it's another Conservative government or or uh, a Labour government, because I simply don't believe that, that this, this lot will ever do something so transparent as to try and find out whether or not they could possibly have got anything wrong themselves. You know, I wouldn't be astonished if that inquiry did go, the Health and Social Care Act system was not fit for purpose. But we we don't know, and we don't know why this new body will be better. Yeah, you know, I don't know, but Hancock doesn't know, Downing Street certainly doesn't know. You know, not least because everyone involved with at the top of the institution is still going to exist in this new merged structure, right? You know, this health protection body. Also, you know, looking at, like, the very good work Henry Dimbleby is doing on the government's national foods uh, strategy. One of the things, of course, that he has rightly identified is that agri-food is the number one source of novel pandemics. It is the source of this pandemic. It was the source of BSE, which, you know, we were very lucky, right? There isn't, there is, you know, there's literally another universe in which, like, you know, like three out of five British adults, you know, people our age have got, you know, variant CJD, right? Like, you know, it, it, things could have got, like, very, very dark and it could have spread over the whole world, right? But they don't have any of those, those sort of powers. And I just think that, that actually the like the Harding hire is, is sort of neither here nor there. It's the like incredibly slapdash approach to everything that is typified by going, yeah, why not start to, to rewire the structure of government? Yeah, what could go wrong? I think that's where I would definitely agree with you, Stephen. And it's not necessarily cynicism it's more pessimism it's just you've seen the way that the that this government actually approaches government and you, you always write I think correctly that they're good at winning elections but they're not any good at much of the stuff that comes after you really do feel fearful that if they're trying to shift functions away from this body into a whole new agency during the spread of a virus that we still don't ver- have very much idea about and they're trying to do it in this way that probably puts spin above efficiency like they do with everything else, then, you know, I don't have much trust that there won't be some kind of, there won't be more mistakes and more frustrations with working with this new body because they're trying to sort of shift the way that everything works while all of the parts are still moving, let alone before we've had a chance to have an inquiry into what went wrong. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing that you touched on there, Stephen, was I think the the implicit sense that this new body will be more accountable than the last one or that in a sense that the Lancy reforms didn't work 
and therefore Matt Hancock is trying to correct them. But I think that's actually a funny one where I'm not really sure where this is going to make a difference. The Public Health England was answerable to Matt Hancock the whole time, but apparently Dominic Cummings didn't realise that Public Health England reported directly to Matt Hancock until June. But I just think that's interesting that the, like the lines of accountability weren't necessarily clear within government, but that's not really Public Health England's fault. You know, they're civil servants. They report into the Department of Health and Social Care, which reports to Matt Hancock. But the way that this new body will still be accountable to Matt Hancock, but also to the chief medical officer, I suppose I don't know enough about it to to know whether that will make a meaningful difference. It strikes me that having two places that you're accountable to is just more confusing. How political are you? How independent are you? You have that dual accountability. I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that that is, is necessarily a better system. But the way it's being framed in certain reports, not least in the Telegraph, whenever, whenever this is reported on, they talk about the new body being accountable to Matt Hancock as though the previous one isn't, which is the main case to be made for them doing this to, to scapegoat public health England. But it's very flimsy because you only need to look at it for a second to see that the accountability doesn't change very much between the two bodies. But yeah, with with the Dido Harding thing, I think what's also interesting is maybe the way it's reflective of the government's wider priorities. That again, thinking from a Matt Hancock perspective of why would you do this? Why would you rearrange the deck chairs on a sinking ship? Like this is such a risk to be making such a big change when we're right in the middle of a pandemic and we're at a huge risk of a second wave in the winter that would be even worse than the first. I mean, he answered that question himself when he was speaking at Policy Change because, you know, it's 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 just such an obvious question. I think he's genuinely convinced that this is the way to bring about smoother delivery of the pandemic response next time around. But I think also underlying that, and it goes back to the point about choosing Dido Harding, it's not that she doesn't have much public health experience, is that she has very extensive experience in the private sector, that she has chaired NHS Improvement, which was developed, it's sort of, it's a, a sort of a bit of the NHS, but that has largely depended on private outsourcing. She's been chair of that for years. Then she also has, you know, she's known for her experience at the telecoms agency Talk Talk, as well as, you know, Tesco and all these other places. She's got quite high level private sector experience and the the overwhelming impression I got from Matt Hancock's speech at Policy Exchange was that he really does see the next stage of the pandemic response in terms of managing test and trace in particular. I think he sees that as a as a big project management issue that that I think he he conceives of it as as an issue of managing lots of different contracts that are going to be outsourced to different parts of the private sector, which is what we've already seen. Like all of the big four accounting firms have been brought on board to handle major parts of the pandemic response. Matt Hancock made a really like unveiled, really enthusiastic, gushing point about how important the private sector, how integral the, the private sector has been to this stage of the pandemic. And I think that maybe... That's the most interesting thing about it, that the move from Public Health England to this new body, the way it's being discussed, the person who's running it and so on, I think it all points towards 
a much more significant reliance on the private sector to carry out a lot of our public health goals. So I think I basically agree with pretty much all of all of that. I think the, the kind of other sort of problem that they're going to have with all of this stuff is procurement is also a skill. Like I think that there often tends to be this attitude, particularly on the you know on the British right of Whitehall is rubbish at running projects, therefore we should just procure things. But procurement is also a skill set, right? Like yeah, you know, just as like kind of going you know going, it's like just as going like I'm rubbish at cooking, so. I'll go out to a restaurant and have a good meal. Well, you have to be able to select a good restaurant in order to be able to do that. Now, obviously, it's a lot easier to, you know, like work out whether or not a restaurant is any good through, like, you know, your sense of smell, et cetera, et cetera, than it is to work out whether or not an organization is any good at the service you are procuring from it. But I think, you know, it, it does speak to my, my sort of central anxiety about this government's handling of the pandemic is the same reason why I'm mostly quite relaxed. Whenever they announce something I agree with, I'm like, you probably aren't competent enough to deliver it. Whenever they announce something I disagree with, I'm like, you're probably not competent enough to do it. Is then the the mode of we centralise, we centralise, we centralise, we hire people we know. And I just instinctively like, you know, I know people always complain about the gratuitous Arsenal re- references, but like it's it's you know it, it's like Arsenal only signing the clients of Kia's European. It's like maybe coincidentally this one guy represents all of the best players on the planet, right? That is possible. Maybe potentially all of the like brightest minds on the British right all know each other, all kind of get along, and and then this is this is a substitute for proper hiring processes, right? I accept conceptually that that could be the case. I just don't think it's likely. I don't think that an overly centralised, you know, kind of who knows who, Dom kind of sniffs someone and believes he can smell their competence. I don't believe that that approach worked very well in the first phase. I don't think it's going to work well in the next phase. And I am, yeah, I just also in general just think like, yeah, actually, as I feel I've both discovered from reading these inquiries and I feel I discover every day that I'm doing stuff on the commission, right? Like, there are so many things that aren't obvious until someone who doesn't know everything about a brief asks yeah that is actually why i'm not saying i you know i have no idea whether or not mckinsey are actually any good but right that is actually why i think it is a good thing for government to you know get people in from outside there's obviously a question about whether or not they're they're paying a good fee for what they're getting and if they're getting the right people to look at it right but actually like, having people who just go well look why do you do this or do you have a thing for this right is incredibly useful but, but yeah, but because like they are sort of congenitally allergic to that, right? We instead just get this weird thing of like, well, we've we've really thought for a long time public health England was the problem, so our solution is based on the idea public health England was the problem, which like it may be right, but like it's like a doctor wandering into the thingy lobby being like, I've decided I'm going to cut off the next patient's left leg, and yeah, sure, like that might cure the problem, but but it's it's not a great clinical way of approaching it. It's interesting as well, as you say, that ethos of of centralising things and not necessarily terribly transparent or wide-netted recruitment processes matched with a lot of procurement and outsourcing. And like you say, procurement is a skill. And I actually do think that in the next few months or years, one of the the big things that journalism will uncover and an inquiry will uncover and be able to answer will be like whether any of the procurement done during the pandemic has been any good at all. Though the kind of overlapping trends of all of the big four accounting firms, McKinsey, I don't know about the other consulting firms, but all of these 
very well-known brands being given huge government contracts. So like Deloitte for PPE, but then there were lots of administrative errors. PwC had a, have had a, like a £10 million contract to give financial advice to the cabinet office since the beginning of the pandemic. KPMG did the Nightingale hospitals and so on. And then overlapping with that, there are there's a, a steady stream of potentially murky contracts with firms that have links to various people in government. And that's and in both cases, there's a, just a huge potential for those not to be very robust because, I mean, even in general, procurement is a skill, getting the right people to, to do the job. But under these emergency procurement measures, where you don't need to do what you would normally do of publicly advertising for contracts worth more than 10k and then you know having a competitive tender process under these emergency procurement measures like none of that is happening and I think it's very very possible that in many of these cases there'll just be scandal after scandal looking at like how inappropriate certain firms were to carry out the work and what bad value for money they created Definitely, definitely. You just have to look at the school meal voucher scheme. You know, the contract was given without a tendering process to this company called Eden Red, and it left children without food for weeks. And that was, you know, born in in the sort of emergency, frantic atmosphere of trying to build this provision and 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 outsource some of these services in the sort of chaos of, of the crisis as the pandemic hit. So I'm sure there's going to be all sorts of other things like that that only come to light further down the line. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. it's time for a section we like to call you ask us so this week we have a question from a kind policy wonk who asks hi guys what is the government logic or otherwise of not extending the furlough scheme not extending the ban on evictions and not making universal credit more generous Anush would you like to start with this one yeah, well, to be honest, you know, logic is a really good word to use in that because it's really difficult to see the logic in this. If you look at it purely, forget all morals, if you look at it purely from trying to stop the virus spreading, okay, we know the virus is still in this country and it's spreading. We have places under local lockdown still. The fear is of a second wave, okay? So if you 
don't extend the furlough scheme, that means that you get more people who are going to be made redundant and in a precarious financial situation. That means that they have less fewer options available to them, which may mean that they are unable or extremely uncomfortable self-isolating if they need to self-isolate. The same thing goes for lifting the ban on evictions. People will be in a more precarious situation in terms of their housing, which means that they also will struggle to self-isolate, whereas if they have a secure housing situation, then then it's easier for them to, to be able to do that if instructed. And the third one, universal credit being more generous, that would be the solution to tapering off the furlough scheme and and taking away some of the emergency support that's been in place for people during the pandemic so far. That would be a solution that would mean that there is a proper safety net for people who find themselves in dire straits, which we basically know that they will because they will, they're, they're already experiencing that. And we've had over two billion more claimants on universal credit which which is an indica- indication of how many more people are going to be relying on the welfare system because there's nothing else in place to help them through this difficult time. If the welfare system worked properly, if it was quicker, if it was more efficient, and if it was more generous, and if it didn't have the benefit cap baked into it and all of these other different caveats, if it didn't have these sort of strange quirks where it only goes into one bank account per household, for example, or you have the situation where if your partner earns a certain amount, then you can't claim universal credit. You have a situation where if you have a certain amount of savings, particularly for self-employed people who often save in order to pay their tax bills, then you can't claim universal credit. If we didn't have all of those barriers in the way and it was a more generous system, then you could see slightly more reason in making the other emergency coronavirus stuff less generous. And of course, you know, and then if you do want to look at it morally as well, why wouldn't you have a more generous and an actual safety net? Because I would argue that universal credit, because of all its flaws, doesn't operate as a an effective safety net for enough people who use it at the moment. Why wouldn't you have one in a in a period where pe- people's health and livelihoods are most at risk? You know, this is the time in our generation where these two things are most at risk. So morally, there, there's an argument for it too. But if you're just looking to, to to stop the spread of the virus, these things don't make any sense. So Stephen, as as the person possibly best placed to explain the government thinking on this, or like the Rishi Sunak thinking on this, my understanding would sort of be that, particularly on like ending the furlough scheme, that Rishi Sunak has has basically just come under pressure from various. I mean, I mean, you can clarify exactly where this pressure is coming from, but I don't know from from various economic think tanks, from different economists, from prominent conservatives that the consensus from the people that he would pay attention to is that the government can't really afford to do the furlough scheme for much longer and that it's possibly that it would be important to basically like shake the economy out at a certain point after this big recession and to just see where the dust settles and to actually see where the job losses are what the lay of the land is and then to to lay the groundwork for sectors to change and adapt and and so on is that your understanding of it yeah that is my my understanding essentially is that the kind of thing shaping all of these decisions is that the kind of treasury view as it were which is very much shared as i understand it by the chancellor himself is sort of twofold one that you can't keep increasing our debt to gdp ratio indefinitely two that the 
kind of the fact that we're starting to see the emergence of negative interest rates indicates that yeah, you know, as, as you know, as some of the put to me, they were just like, you know, look, negative interest rates aren't 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 sustainable. That won't last. The money market's appetite for government debt is not infinite, and the fact that things are starting to go negative, they believe, is a sign that that will start to unwind itself. Interest rates will go up again, and then the kind of, and then you know, essentially because the because the real economy, as it were. So it's not so much a kind of like, oh, you know, because like government debt is, is it, then the, the, they think that if you continue on in this way, interest rates go up. We know, of course, that many, many households are not able to weather a return to pre-crisis or normal or whatever phrase you want to use to describe non, non-low non interest rates. But, you know, essentially all of this is about the, the first sort of big hint as to what the budget is likely to look like in autumn, i.e. for it to be quite austere, quite painful, and for it to be about beginning to get the UK's debt to, debt to GDP ratio. And if podcast listeners are tired of me here saying those words, then trust me, it was nowhere near as bad as it was recording this and the eight run-ups I needed to take to say any of those words. But yeah, they're essentially going to, going to use that budget to, 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 to try and bring that under control in heavy and inverted commas. Now, the obvious point of tension, and I say this, it suddenly occurs to me, I really should have blogged about this, and uh, I therefore will in the next couple of days. The obvious point of tension is that this is, as I understand it, very much not Downing Street's view. Now, the view of some people at the top of the government is this because, you know, Downing Street does not have... I mean, actually, the other kind of interesting subplot here is how much the merger of those two teams, which lots of Whitehall people, myself very much included, got very sort of excitable about and when this is a huge change in how we govern, has not in practice, I think, borne itself out, right? The institutional power of the Treasury, the popularity of the incumbent Chancellor, all of those together have kind of meant that there is still a fairly sharp division. And I think we will start to see that become more real in the budget when it happens. And that is essentially the kind of, you know, is, is the sort of logic. Overlaying that, there are kind of sort of two parallel schools of thought about the with you know, so obviously you know i'm basically not very sympathetic to most of what i just described there and i'm mainly using most there in case there is something i'm sympathetic to that i've forgotten about but the thing i'm more sympathetic to is the argument that we're going to be living with the novel coronavirus for a long time and therefore the furlough is a terrible way of protecting incomes because those jobs are going to be lost the economy needs to adapt and change and that you are better off using levers like universal credit or ubi or you know or, or boosting the safety net in a, in a in a in a third way than you are using the furlough to protect jobs that do not exist yeah right then ultimately right there, there's an argument that you know theater as we know it is not going to be able to resume for a very long time so what you need to do is you know give give people sort of grants to transition to, you know, making animation or, you know, being voice actors or whatever, you you know, you need to do that kind of thing. And that partly shapes some of his thinking about the furlough. He's told other ministers and officials and he thinks that, you know, it it creates this impression that people will have jobs to get back to, which they they won't because of the change in the shape of the economy, which is my understanding of, of what is influencing the government's thinking on all of this. Now, I personally still think it is actually... It is, it is an if, not a when, then the furlough will end. We are currently the only, well, as I'd say, we're the only G7 country not extending these measures. Obviously, with the slight caveat that the States does not have an income protection scheme, 
in the way we would recognise it. It simply has a more generous welfare state than it would in normal times. But essentially, I still think it is fairly likely, right, because because at the moment, right, you essentially have, like, the economics people in the government have gone, this is like, you know, the, the consensus among, like, the right about where, where what the problem is, and that's what we're going. This is what we're going to do to fix it. It is far from clear to me if, like, when that consensus starts to have a tangible effect for many more people, and we can already see in both the polls and ONS measurements of happiness, then people are starting to to notice the the confidence in the government's economic handling is starting to go down a bit. The question to me is still like, is there a point where like? Downing Street basically goes, no, 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 the furlough will have to be continue, will have to be extended. I don't know. I think it is more likely than people think, simply because the alternative is going to be very painful. I mean, is being very painful already, but um, will be, you know, even more painful, not least because at the moment there are definitely some businesses who are very much of the view that, like, they think the furlough will have to be extended for them. Now, you can argue about how that's a Pollyannaish and irresponsible way for them to behave. Nonetheless, it's how they're behaving. Yeah, so that is essentially my understanding of what the thinking on these issues is. It's interesting as well. I suppose the tricky thing about that question is that it covered, you know, not just um, ending the furlough scheme, but the end to the ban on evictions, which is due to be lifted on Sunday, and the the policy on universal credit more generally. And I think I would be similar in that I I do broadly understand the government or the Treasury thinking on not extending the furlough scheme, even though I would have reservations about that and think it would be a, a huge risk. But I think the evictions ban is is the more pressing one. I actually still wouldn't be entirely surprised if they U-turned on that. You know, what's another little U-turn? Because I think that that, I mean, that will cause such devastation. I mean, from a cynical perspective, the, like, the bad press would be immediate on that one. A government that like hasn't cared about students in low performing schools from um, less advantaged backgrounds and and then now it doesn't care about about very vulnerable people who've lost their jobs being turfed out onto the streets so that would be my feeling I don't know if if either of you agree on that one that we could see a u-turn it's really difficult to tell but before this crisis and I know it's not exactly the same thing but before before the pandemic rough sleeping was a sort of was rising and was was at a sort of record high since 2010 and to be honest when that election last year was coming up I thought that would be quite a salient issue particularly for a winter election when you notice these things more and you know you feel more sympathy because people are are out on the streets in in horrendous conditions but it didn't really shift the public mood and so I do think that the, evic- the sort of avalanche of evictions probably that will come about once that ban is lifted and add to the already nearly 20,000 households that have been made homeless during the pandemic, which is something that one of our freelance writers, Chaminda Gianetti, uh, revealed this week from FOI requests. I think it will add to that number, but I haven't seen the public appetite yet at a level that would shift this government into U-turn mode. So that's what I think. And I know that's a bit of a pessimistic view. Obviously, I feel there's no easier way for us to all sound silly than to speculate on whether or not this government will U-turn. <laughs> I, I, I feel that it, it might, actually, for the for the basic reason that, in general, the pattern, you know, the kind of, you know, the pattern of this government is the one thing longer than the Don Cummings blog about how they're radical and disruptive and they don't care about unpopularity, is the number of retreats the second that they're a little bit unpopular about something. I, I think, like, the kind of, the pattern, the kind of, 
the noises of alarm being made by, you know, conservative councils about what the end of this ban will mean in practice, particularly, of course, about what this end of this ban means in practice for the voters they won over for the first time in December. I think I kind of feel I wouldn't be surprised if there was an 11th hour U-turn. But in some ways, right, that is a bit like um, I, I once had a lunch with someone from the House of Lords who was, you know, was and is really into, you know, betting and racing. And they said to me that they always bet against the Labour Party in elections. And I said, oh, why? It's an emotional hedge. And they were like, well, yeah, a bit, but also just on the form book, right? You just, we do lose an awful lot, right? They were like, and I've learned that even when I think we're going to win, I'm kind of often wrong. And I was just like, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> fair, you can't disagree. And in some ways, I just think like, similarly, you wouldn't go broke betting that this government would U-turn. And I do think that, and our, our response to this crisis has been quite orthodox, Eventually, as it were, like we eventually ended up with income, an income protection scheme that is fun, functionally identical to everyone else in Europe. We ended up with a lockdown that is functionally identical. It has some very important and positive exemptions about parks and green space. So I just kind of think, yeah, I think they might U-turn. Yeah, and and what you were saying, Anish, I mean, about how, I mean, levels of rough sleeping have been very high for a long time and it hasn't had cut through. I think that the reason why this could be a U-turnable policy is because of the kinds of people who who would be potentially rough sleeping for the first time or being thrown out on the streets. I think it's a quite huge indictment of, of the system and who we care about and don't care about that this would be the case. But I think that there's a bit of immunity within public discourse to, to rough sleeping in lots of ways that there's a whole chunk of people that society is almost accepted are going to be homeless or vulnerably housed for long periods of time and people tend to sort of ignore them or not care about them or say it's a big shame but that it doesn't shift the dial in terms of political discussions but I I wonder if this would be different because you would get you know Lewis Goodall from Newsnight interviewing someone you know who'd had some sort of terribly respectable job who had lost it during the pandemic, hadn't been able to pay rent, didn't have a family support system to fall on. And suddenly new kinds of people would be in a particularly economically vulnerable situation. You know, like you say, Stephen, you know, potentially conservative voters or um, the kinds of voters that the Conservative Party needs to hold on to or win over um, for its sort of like long-term base. And those are the kinds of people that the government can't be can't afford to be seen to be letting down yeah i think there's a lot of truth in that there was a good interview with john bird the founder of the big issue by our colleague samir on the spotlight supplement where he predicted social unrest because so many people will be affected by homelessness not rough sleeping specifically but not having a a, a home to live in and having to stay in temporary accommodation or being between addresses etc and I think you know depending on the people who are affected and I know it's a bit of an indictment like you say of who society generally values and enough to to be mobilized but I I do think there is there is the opportunity for for that kind of response as well. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me Alva Ray, my colleagues Anusha Kellyan and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you like this podcast, please do leave us a favourable review, and thanks very much for listening.
when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.